Hi, it's Gary Witter, creator and writer of Gundog. I hope you've been enjoying this audiobook podcast. My original novel, from which this audio version was adapted, is now available. And to celebrate, I sat down with the wonderful Maud Garrett of Maud's Book Club for a wide-ranging interview to talk about where the book came from, my writing process, and much more. I hope you'll enjoy listening to our discussion. You can find Gundog at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever else books are sold. It's also available as an ebook on Kindle and iBooks. Now, without further ado... Hi everyone, it's Maud. I have COVID. Oh no, please, please bear with me. Um, welcome to Maud's Book Club. As you know, we love to cover a book every single month and when we've got cool books, we like to do two books. Speaking of two books, this is the book right behind me. It is Gundog by The Gary Witter. Now, if you've been on Twitch, you know Gary. He's the one usually swearing up a storm in a bunch of different streams, um, playing a bunch of different games. Um, but if you like movies, you'll know him as the screenwriter for great movies such as there's a book of Eli with Denzel Washington. He did Rogue One, a Star Wars story as well for all the Star Wars nerds. Um, he's written for your favorite comic books with DC and Marvel. He's worked on The Walking Dead. This guy knows what he's talking about. Oh, Zelda knows what he's talking about. And he's written his second book. It is all sci-fi and we're going to have a big chat about it today. I would love to welcome to the stream Mr. Gary Witter. Hello, Gary Hi, I, I, I honestly feel a little bit bad dragging you, like, not necessarily out of bed, but, like, making you do this when you just came down with COVID. Like, how are you feeling? Um, I, I Honestly, I've done this to myself. I have been boasting the last couple of days because it was Monday that I tested positive and I felt a little bit sick over the weekend, so I stayed in, inside all day. And everyone's like, how bad is it? Because the last two times I've had COVID, I was bedridden for two weeks. It was no joke. And this one, I was like, I just was like, I've got a mild cold. I'm totally fine. <laughs> I wonder if you're becoming more resistant to it now because you've had it a few times. Maybe. Maybe it's a different strain. Um, but, yeah, I woke up this morning and I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. So um, that'll that'll show me for over-underestimating myself and underestimating what this is. Um, but don't even worry about it. I've read this book. I do, I do, I do worry about it. I, I, you know, I, I know what I'm like. All I need is a little sniffle and I'm cancelling everything. So yeah, I know. <laughs> For keeping keeping this on the on the calendar. No, I'm dedicated to this, um, and I actually finished it today because I wanted it fresh in oh, my great. mind. Yeah, um, to talk about it with you. Now, if you are a part of Maud's Book Club's Patreon, you actually get to submit questions, and I've got a bunch of questions from the audience that I want to get stuck into straight out the gate, and then I want to talk about your first book, this book, what you've done differently with this book. There's a lot to chat about, so let's get stuck in straight away. More of the general questions. We've got Will P uh, from Maud's Book Club who has asked, can you describe your writing process? Now, I believe you because you've written so many different things on so many different platforms. How much different is it to map out an entire book? It's it's my process is different with every not just with every um projects but also certainly between the different kinds of projects because I primarily film and television writer, a screenwriter, and that's a very specific discipline if you've ever like read a screenplay or even just page through it you you know that that it's a they're written in a very very specific way they're not really written to be read by an audience they're written to be read by you know filmmakers who are mm. going to use that as the blueprint to make a film you still have to tell a story and keep people interested and keep them wanting you know, to turn the pages because the first job of a screenplay is it kind of to sell itself right people have got to read it and think oh this is a good story mm. so the rules of like good storytelling and characterization and plot and structure and all that stuff basically still apply but in execution the difference between writing a screenplay and writing a novel is night and day, like completely yeah. different. And obviously with different pros and cons, 
Uh, so back in 2015, when I wrote my first book, it was partly because I just wanted to try something different. It was also because I just knew that if I tried to um, write my first book as a screenplay, no one would no one would make the movie because it's just kind of gnarly medieval body horror thing that I didn't expect Hollywood to, to you know to want to make that. So I wrote it as a book instead, and it found an audience, and I was really pleased by that. But more than anything, I I learned. I kind of taught myself because I'm very autodidactic. I taught myself to write screenplays. I taught myself to write a novel. I don't really read books about how to do things because I mm. just don't. I just don't process information well that way. I'm not. I don't do well in structured learning environments. Like I hated school. Like sit me behind a desk and someone's going to stand at the mm -hmm. front of the room and like teach me things. Like it, it all goes in one ear and out the other. I learn by by doing. Doing. By, mm -hmm. by, by like, oh, that didn't work. Let's not do that again. Like you know, learning from my mistakes. Um, and I honestly, when I, I mean, obviously I've. Uh, read many many books over the years. I was a, been a voracious reader of books, specifically sci-fi and fantasy, ever since I was a kid. But I never really thought a lot about what went into making one until I thought, well, let's try writing this story as a book. And I'll tell you, it sounds embarrassing, but it's true. I literally googled how many words are there in a novel, like because <laughs> I honestly didn't know. How many are there? <laughs> do, you, do you know? It's no. it's um well, I can I can tell you that um anything under like. 50 60,000 you probably don't have a, that's going to be a really thin book unless you blow up the the text really really big but obviously the you know like I'll give you an example my first book was 150,000 no 125,000 words my second book the one we're talking about today was was about 75 80,000 so oh, okay. like tens of thousands of words difference in length between the two one is shorter than the other and it was designed that way uh, and of course, the answer is really a book is as, is as long as or, or as short as it needs to be, right? right? If you have a massive, epic, long story to tell, then by all means, write a massive, epic, long book. You don't have quite the same strictures that you do in screenwriting where, you know, if your screenplay is much longer than 120 pages, because the way it works in screenwriting is a page of properly structured screenplay roughly will come out as about a minute of film time. So 120 page script will roughly, roughly give you a two hour movie. Uh, and so if you turn in like a like 150, 180 page screenplay, someone's going to look at it and go, oh, my God, this is a three hour movie. Yeah, mm. we have to cut this down. But a book, you know, can, you know, go go look at any book on, a, you know, go, look, go to your local bookstore. They're all shapes and sizes and all different thicknesses. And so that was that was my first kind of liberating thing was to realize, well, I don't have to worry about like how do I have to fit this in a certain length or I could just let it be as long as it was. And so Abomination, my first book was actually pretty long. Um, again, sh again, short by some authors' standards, who write like big, thick doorstep books. Um, but the first one, at least, the first one was like 125, and this next one's like closer to 80. So, again, it's the the, the first thing I learned was like the, the story is as long as it as it needs to be. And then in terms of like actual process, whether I'm screenwriting or writing novels, I go back and forth depending on how I'm kind of feeling the material. But I think I am generally a bit more of a uh, seat of your pants type person mm. i my process has changed a lot over the years when i was when i was a young writer like literally in my teens and i was first experimenting with creative writing like you know what you're like back then you're like you're very young and impatient and just want to get on with it you don't want to read any books or like learn how to do it like you just want to you know how like when you take like your first guitar lesson and you're, and you're not even picking up the guitar yes so i want to get into it i don't know you have to learn to mm. do all these things first um i just wanted to get into the writing and i didn't want to outline i didn't want to plot out the story i wanted to just start writing and so i did that and of course what you learn again going back to learning from your mistakes what i learned very quickly is if you write without any plan at all any sense of like where your story is going um you will wind up in 
weird uncharted territory and write yourself into into cul-de-sacs and dead ends that you can't get out because you didn't think it through um there's got to be some i i'm not like an intricate plotter my books and my movies as well tend not to be like very intricately plotted they're fairly simple from from a story mechanics perspective but you do it needs you at least need to have a rough sense of like a beginning a middle and an end i think and so when i first wrote the book of eli i wrote I didn't write like a long outline. It was literally just like one, what we call a beat sheet, one page of like, here are the major story beats in the movie. And that was just, and like if, as long as I have like a central spine, I kind of know where I'm going so I don't get lost. That gives me enough to write with. And I generally tend to avoid, unless I'm contractually obliged to when I, when I uh, write for movie studios, um, which I sometimes am, try to avoid writing really long, detailed outlines and treatments because that part's not, it's not the actual writing, right? You're writing a document about what you want to write. And that's not that fun for me. And I, what I have discovered over the years is that all of my best moments of discovery, all my best kind of aha, eureka type, oh, that's a good idea, I should do that. Those, those things tend to happen when I'm like actually in the page hmm. writing the thing. I don't know why, my brain doesn't fully engage until I'm actually writing. When I'm writing an outline or a treatment I'm kind of one step removed from the actual writing and I feel like I'm not fully like in, in, in full gear. And it's only when I start writing. So for that reason, I, I started increasingly kind of bypassing the outlining process. And I would just do mm. the, again, never do none because I, you'll get stuck every time. But like I've, I've learned enough about myself and my own process to be able to, to, to spend as little time as possible outlining as little as possible, like just enough to get me started. And then I'll, I'll figure out the rest. I believe it's called pantsing. You just, that's the seat of your pants yes. method. You pants it and you just kind of stream of consciousness, get it all out and like, you know, your fingers typing away kind of take you on the journey. Um, it's so interesting going from 120 pages to 120,000 words. Um, I think the big thing is uh, understanding that you have full control over everything instead of sort of like submitting to the director for them to take the vision for it. Uh, you also get something that screenplay and movies never get, and that is in a monologue, subtext, all of the unsaid things. You get to say it at your whim in these books. How was that finally being able to flesh out inner dialogues and, and thoughts and nuance in that particular way? Yeah, I can tell that I'm like talking to a proper book club person here because you're you're hitting like all the right these are literally all the things that i kind of discovered along the way when i was when i wrote my first book and then rediscovered when i wrote my second was like, i wanted to write like let me i want to try something different like i see like it's almost kind of like learning a new language because it's so different to write in prose rather than um again just the very kind of stilted writing that often makes up a screenplay we just go about words like a screenplay might only be like four or five thousand words at, like not even that um, because there's very few words on the page. If you look mm. at a screenplay, it's very bare. So to go from like 5,000 words to 125,000 words, just by volume, I'm writing a lot more, but I really enjoyed that. And yeah, you're right. A couple of things like internal monologue, like it's really nice. You never want to, like, again, with any story, you don't want it to get like bogged down and like with these kind of pointless, you know, meandering detours, but you do have much more uh, luxury with the way that a book is paced to get inside the characters' heads, you know, and hear their thoughts, you know, in a way that you might not otherwise. And do a little, do a little detour and just like sit with the characters for a moment in a way that in a movie might be really boring or hard to present. So I really enjoyed discovering that. And I, I think when my first book, I maybe got a little bit carried away. There's a lot of kind of internal monologuing and kind of backstory chapters, like the abomination, which is set during 
um, or right after the Viking invasions of England in the 10th century, like the first 50 pages are just basically this really nerdy kind of pot of history of the Viking War. <laughs> Exposition! Um, you get and, to do it now yeah, instead of a flashback before scene. Even, <laughs> before we even get into like the monsters and the magic and all the crazy stuff, it was just this kind of, you know, nerdy historical interlude. Um, but then the other thing, the main thing, and I guess I had a sense of this, but I didn't really, it didn't really occur to me until it happened was like, you're right. Like when I write a screenplay, again, like I said earlier, it's not for the reader. That is, that's, it's not for a reader. It's for a director and for actors and producers and executives who are going to, you know, consider it to, you know, are we going to spend money making this movie? Does an actor want to play a part in this movie? It's really more of a sales tool than anything else. So I always say like, it's not the actual house. It's just the blueprint for the house that the architects are going to use to build the actual thing that people will then go to a movie theater and see. But when you're writing a book, that is the actual house, right? That is the finish. When you're done, other than a little bit of editing and like actually printing and publishing the book, the creative work is done, right? There's no one that really comes after you. And mm. that really, I, so when I did my first book, they put me with a, the assignment editor and she was really nice and she was super smart because it was my first book. It, it needed a fair amount of editing. And she gave me a, a, a whole bunch of notes. I remember getting the Word document back that had all the kind of the red mm-hmm. little flags on it, the, all, the, all the comments in the sidebars. And it was just, it was like the, it was like a massacre. It was like red. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> there's so much red. I was skimming through going, oh my God, there's so many notes. But they were all really, really, really smart. It was like, and it was, it was mostly little, there wasn't anything structural like you need to chuck out, chuck out this whole section and start over. It was just like, this sentence might read better if you structured it this way. Mm. Or you might want to consider using another word here because you used it already like two pages ago and it's things that you don't necessarily notice when you're writing and they were all really really smart notes i would say like less than five percent were notes that i any in any way kind of bumped up against and Mm. a couple of times i went back to the to the editor i'll never forget this i tell this story almost every time i get interviewed about writing books uh coming from a screenwriter's background where i'm constantly basically just trying not to get fired Mm, yeah The, the, the 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 unspoken context in which you are given notes when you're working for a movie studio even if it's something that you created like when i created the book of eli but once i sell it to warner brothers they own it mm-hmm. and they can fire me as soon as, as whenever they want and so when i'm getting notes from warner brothers they are kind of presented no one will ever say this out loud but every every writer knows that the, sub, the unspoken subsex is do these notes to our satisfaction or we will find someone else who will right and writers get replaced and 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 kicked off movies all the time every screenwriter and okay who they are can tell you a story about that happening and it's so strange to think about that when when you realize how unique that is in in the creative world like for example let's imagine stephen king turned in his latest book to his publisher and the publisher said stephen we love this book we're not that thrilled about the third act what if this happened in the third act instead of that and stephen king said no i don't i don't want to do it that way i like it this way Okay, great. Well, we're going to fire you and bring in another writer to rewrite the third act of your book. Like it's you're shaking your head. It's preposterous, right? Yeah. But that's that is completely normal in Hollywood. That happens all the all the all the time. Um, you know, the word authority is of course derived from being the author of something. But but in in Hollywood, you have no you have no real authority as the as the original author of the work. Um, and when I did my notes with my editor. And I was kind of afraid, well, what's, what's going to happen if I push back on some of these notes? I went to my editor and said, I love most of these notes. I've got like three here that I just don't agree with. And like, I understand where you're coming from, but like, I just want to do it my way. Yeah. So what happens now? And she was like, do it your way then. Like these notes are just suggestions. It's your book. I'm here to help you. But if you don't agree with any of my notes, ignore them and chuck them out. And I was like, it was like the scales were lifted. It's like the heavens opened. I was like, oh my God, really? 
that's amazing. I don't get fired. Um, I can actually write this story the way that I want to write it. And that was remarkable. And um, the only downside of it is because movie making is so collaborative and I, every movie that I've worked on, I've always been like nowhere near the smartest person. I'm always surrounded by people far smarter than me. And that is comforting, right? Because if you pitch a bad idea or, or, or have a bad instinct, there are smarter people around you to kind of check your math and say, eh, maybe don't do it that way. What if we did it this way? And you go, oh yeah, of course, that's much better. What was I thinking? But when you write a book, you do have, you do have the editor as well. And most of the time they're doing the same thing. Eh, maybe consider doing it this way. I go, oh yeah, much better. And I'll change it. Thanks, editor. But every now and again, when I do put my foot down and say, no, I'm convinced that I'm right here. She's like, I've edited, five, I've edited 500 books. Well, I, I, well, I'm writing this one and I'm going to have it my way. And that's all very good until the moment they commit to printing it. And you start to think, shit, what if I was wrong? Like, what if my edit, well, what if I did get it wrong? Like, there's no safety net. Right. Um, in, in almost every movie that I've worked on, if there's something in it that you didn't like or did like, I, I, I can never really take all of the credit or all of the blame because I'm just mm -hmm. one small part of the storytelling process. But with Abomination and with Gundog, it's all me, right? If there's something in Gundog that you didn't like, I can't point the finger at anyone else. It's my fault. If there's something you did like, then I'll happily take the credit, but I also have to take all of the blame. So ultimately, that's a net positive for me. I like the full responsibility. I like having authority over the over the finished story. It's nice to be able to pre present something and just say, this is all me, right? Mm. No one else got in the middle. There's no one else between me and my audience. There's an editor, but again, I can choose not to do their notes. Um, and that's... And so when people do like the book, it's that much more satisfying because you you feel like you have ownership of of their of their whatever satisfaction they're getting. You can say, oh, that was me. I did that. So, yeah. I, I've got so many questions that have spurned from this, but the first the analogy like that you've just made with that, the only way I can relate to that is the difference between an actor and a host because an actor is being a character. So if you don't like the character, then you get to have that disassociation being like, well, I'm playing a role. But as a host, right. everything and every word that I say, that comes out of Maud's mouth. So I have complete ownership over that particular thing that I do right. as a host, which again, you know, is great when I nail it. It's shocking when I say something that gets me in trouble. Um, I need to do a little housekeeping because we got um, follows, raids, Ryko raided. We did, we got a big raid from Ryko. Yeah, Ryko raided a little bit ago and I didn't want to um, interrupt your flow at all because you were crushing your answer about your writing process, which Will is in the comments saying, oh my gosh, I do that, same, ah. Oh. But Raiko was saying, Gary's here. Um, so thank you so much for that. He was playing Lies of P, which is a brand new game. Uh, I'm so interested to hear a little bit more about it. Then KP Dubs gifted five subs um, to the likes of Raptorial Bird, Zero and Nine, Quapi, Manolin and Feminine Fig. Then Vaden came in and gifted 10 subs to the community. So Captain NJP, Pumpkin Cakes, J-Rod from Spokane. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. Hi, J-Rod from Spokane. Hey, what's funny? Spokane? What's funny about that? Just like, I'm J-Rod from Spokane. It's all in the username. Oh, okay. I just think that's really quite funny. Uh, Melanie SP. He's really proud of Spokane. <laughs> yeah. I love it there. JP from Spokane. I, it, just, it says everything. Some people love to be anonymous, but not JP. J-Rod from Spokane. Um, Alphidius, Unacceptable Losses, Mark Prime, uh, Latsuki and Dravit and Sangria Goldfish and then Catch-22. Get to 22 subs as he does monthly, which is amazing. Uh, in this instance, and because I have COVID and I've got a guest, I will not read out all 22 names. But if you got gifted a sub, thanks to Catch-22, make sure you say thank you in the comments because we're a nice community around here. Um, 
uh, a lot of people weighing in. We've got a lot of comments about the writing process uh, and how it all works. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions because every writer has usually such a different process with how they do it. Some are meticulous with planning things out. Every single chapter has beats and that's how mapped out it is. Other people don't even know the ending when they start writing. Super interesting. Um, STS2884 asks, any genre that you haven't gotten to write for yet that you want to? Because Abomination's sort of fantasy slash horror. Gundog is sci-fi. I feel like you've got your nerd quota happening big time there, but is there a genre? It's it's weird. I, I tend to kind of accidentally stumble into genres that I have no intention in, in, initially of writing in. Like I, I'll write something and think it is a certain thing, but it's not until I get it in front of readers who are, because the thing is like, you're always like, the least able to kind of critique your own work, right? Because mm-hmm. you're too close to you're it. In you're, it. You're looking at it from the inside. The way the way that I always think about it is, you know how like when you hear your own voice back on tape, it's like, oh my God, is that what I really sound like? That's how everybody hears you, right? That's what you sound like to everyone else. But your own voice to you sounds different because it's coming from inside your own head, right? And that affects the acoustics of how you hear it. I kind of feel like it's that with writing, right? Like the, the, the way that I perceive my writing, only I can perceive, only I perceive it that way. Because yep. I created it, it came out of me. There's no way I can ever like step away from it and have objectivity. Um, and so it's not until I put something in front of other readers sometimes that I actually understand or realize what it is that I've written. Um, and that can be really surprising. When I wrote Abomination, I initially thought of it as just this really cool kind of gory fantasy. I didn't I didn't think of it as a horror piece because I don't think it's particularly scary. It's just really, really gory. A lot of people yeah. getting, getting their arms and legs ripped off and stuff like that because I wanted to see, I just wanted to do like an old fashioned monster movie, um, but not necessarily one that's terrifying, but like one that's kind of like almost like an old fashioned, like Roger Corman type monster movie. So not necessarily scary, but definitely kind of gnarly. It's, I always describe my first book as gnarly. And when it went to the publisher, they went, oh, yeah, we're going to send this out to like horror book clubs and get like horror influence. Like, Wait, horror? And they go, oh, yeah. Are you not aware that you wrote a horror book? I'm like, I mean, I guess mm-hmm. I am now. So again, it happened like completely by accident. I'll give you another example. This actually happened really recently. I can't talk about what it is, but I wrote something uh, recently. Actually, more, you do know what it is because mm-hmm. you may have looked at it a little bit. So we're not allowed to talk about it. But mm-hmm. so that was a thing where I wrote it. And I thought I was writing this really dark, twisted drama. And when I gave it to one of my first trusted readers, she came back and said, oh, it's really funny. It's funny. Like, Wait, is it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I, it wasn't intended to be. But what was interesting, I was in the middle of writing it. It was like it was a TV thing. I only, only written a, had written a couple of episodes. But I got back from the initial readers. Oh, we really like the fact that it's funny and the comedy. So I started, I, oh, shit, like I've accidentally... I don't think of myself as a comedy writer, but I accidentally stumbled into writing a comedy. A dark once comedy. Was, yeah, once it, was, once it was kind of, once my own work was explained back to me as what it actually was, or at least how it was being perceived, I was like, oh, okay. So you're let's, genre let's, fluid. Let's go, let's, let's, let's go with that. I'm very, I'm very genre fluid. I'm genre yeah. curious. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I like I'm that. Omni, I'm omni-generic. Omni and I, it's funny, it goes back, goes back to that question about process. Like I... I was able to pivot with that project that uh, that I had shared with you, and uh, and to then to take it further into. Co- I went back and like retroactively changed some stuff to make it totally mm-hmm. consistent. But like, what was interesting about that was I said, hey, like, like always at least have an outline. With this most recent thing, I didn't at all. I just was really kind of besotted with this idea. I wanted to explore this character, and that one really, really was making it up 
as I went. Like, I literally would start each episode having no idea wow. where it would go. And I was like, I'm just going to let them, I'm going to pretend that these characters are real to me, that they're real people. I'm gonna, and I'm going to let them tell me what they want to happen. And then I'm just going to write it. So it's and like it was, method never, writing. Yeah, it was really weird. I've never written anything that way before. And I was fully prepared for it again to like write it off of a cliff and like, well, that didn't work back to square one. Let's outline it this time. And yet it was this really, really weird fluke. I don't think it'll ever happen again where like, even though I did the, the least amount of plotting and the least amount of structuring and outlining, it, it just, it, I, I just fell ass backwards into like, it came out really, really well. And I just ended up, remember I said earlier, I do all my, all my best discovery on the page. Mm. I think because I went straight to the page, I was able to get straight into that process and connect with the characters and just feel it in a way that I hadn't before. I think you can over outline. I think you can, yeah. you can write like an 80 page outline and every beat and every twist and every reveal and every moment is in there, right? In, in detail. Um, but then for me, when the time comes to write it, all the fun's been taken. I've done all the fun stuff, all the discovery, all the creative, all the storytelling. And now I'm just kind of like basically adapting that treatment into like a novel or a screenplay. But well, you're almost the, chained. You're I've, confined I've already, by your structure. Yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, you can, you, I mean, you can change it. And that's why like when, when, when I do screenwriting, people say, well, well, you know, you're, we're going we're gonna to hire you to write a treatment first. Like, that's a necessary step. And I say, I'll write you a treatment, but just be aware that, like, I'm probably going to throw it out after you've read it, like, because that's just not how I work. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a constantly moving target, which I find um, delightful. The fact, that, the fact that, like, I can find myself, like, switching genres it's mm. like it's like you know like the, the frogs in jurassic park that just spontaneously change sex mm -hmm. because they because they need to right life finds a way i kind of feel like creativity finds a way as well and i i keep falling backwards like, i fell backwards into horror I wrote a horror book without realizing it i wrote a comedy tv show without realizing it i don't know it's like this is why i'm so when I speak at conventions and seminars and things about writing, I always tell people don't get bogged down in rules. Don't read, go, don't mm. go read a million books about how to write and, or how to write a screenplay. Like there are some good ones out there and there are definitely universal storytelling basics that it's good to know. But at the end of the day, what you need to figure out is what works for you because it's different for everybody. You, you can talk to 10 of the, of the 10 of your favorite authors or 10 of the most popular successful however you want to quantify authors in the world, and they will all tell you something different about mm -hmm. how they approach their work. Mm -hmm. I like that. So trying to replicate someone else's process is not going to work. You just have to find your own. It's essentially, it's the trust the process, but it's like trust yourself in getting, getting it the way you need to. Because our brains are all different and they work in wonderful ways. I've got a question here from Vaden. We're getting straight into the book. We're talking gun dog now. Good. Um, I got, can I just say it's actually such a thrill now for me now that the book, because I've been living with this for a long time. You know, these things gestate for a long time. And we did the audio version last year, which was the story's first exposure to the world. And that was great. But it's actually my favorite time in the process now is to get it out in the world and now start to hear what other people think of oh, the story okay. and, to, and to be able to react to them and do this kind of book club stuff so oh i'm glad you picked up on that let's talk about it this is like a really fun fun part of the process for me okay well let's get through them we've got a bunch let's of questions here uh, yeah. first off vaden asks what inspired the name gundog um i always had i, I just thought it was, i just thought it sounded cool it just sounded <laughs> like, a, like a cool word um and i just i it's it's funny over the year it was originally called a boy and his robot like, like back in 2009 when i first started playing around with it and before the lead character um was a was a woman originally it was a, it was a young boy um and i i, I wanted to come I, I knew i wanted to do something with mechs 
and I I like all the military jargon and all that bullshit, like you know, Top Gun or like I love all of that stuff. I got Top and Gun so from this a little in, bit. In mm -hmm. A little bit, yeah. A little mm -hmm. bit last Starfighter. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of that kind of stuff in there. And there's two, you know, there's two people in the cockpit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, I I got a little, I got a little bit nerdy about figuring out like if the military had really built because the idea is like the 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 mech in the story is this essentially this kind of air force prototype that they built years ago to fight off this alien invasion and it didn't work and it's been sitting in a hangar ever since. But it was built by the air force and you know, the U.S. Air Force. And so, like, okay, well, what what would they call it? What would it look like? And so. Um, yeah, I came up with the uh, the M151 Gundog Armored Co Armored Combat Biped or ACB. It just sounded cool. But I was thinking about like I was looking at other military vehicles. You look, you think about like the A10 Warthog, right? And the and the F14 Tomcat and the mm -hmm. F15 Eagle and the F18 Hornet, right? They're all named after you know cool um, creatures. And so and so the idea just I, I, I didn't I know, put Gundog. that together for me. You it, it was like my it was like my version of Tomcat. You know, the, I, it was kind of the the. Oh. the it's it's based a little bit because you know that like an f-14 tomcat a gun dog has a pilot and a rio right it's someone who's someone who's behind them and when in, in a tomcat it's the, the guy's called the radio intercept officer who's basically the navigator who picks out targets and stuff um in gun dog it's more a little bit like the last starfighter essentially there's a pilot who drives the thing and then there's a gunner mm -hmm. who shoots at things um and it's from a storytelling point a perspective it's nice to do that because you can have two characters talking to each other right there's a third character in the cockpit as well but um it's it's nice to be able to have interaction between two people in a cockpit and not just one person alone um but yeah it was very i think it originally came from like i love the i, I love just always love the name the f-14 tomcat i grew up on on um on top gun like everyone else and i remember thinking like what's what's this if it's the f-14 tomcat this is the m-151 what yeah. If it's not a warthog, it's not a tomcat. What is it? And it was, and we came up with Gundog. And also, this accident, accidental. Some people ask, is it is it meant to evoke Gundam? You know, which is of course one of the one of the greater you know oh, Japanese yeah, yeah, yeah. mecha the uh, kaiju's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I was so I was trying to I was trying to I, I, this whole book is kind of a tribute to to the Japanese mecha subculture and wanting to do like a very Americanized version of it. Um, and so that was actually kind of. Um, kind of accidental, but yeah, it ended up being a it ended up being a title that I just sometimes you pick titles because you just like them, you know, you just like the word. I I feel like there's two types of people: the people that know that reference and they get like the Tomcat sort of side of things, right? And then the right. me the me's of the world that are waiting for these electronic dogs to start shooting. Um, and I was like, okay, I've, I know, and I've that, seen and black for, uh, what is it, the Black Mirror episodes of like the robots that are and like for a while. SEO was a nightmare because you know, you <laughs> before this book came out, you get a lot of like things about hunting dog. Like a gun dog is actually a dog that when you go hunting, it will go like you know. Um, scare up targets for you, like ducks for you to shoot at or whatever. That's, on, on, oh. and bring that's what, a, that's what a gun dog actually is. I just, I know it's, it sounded kind of militaristic and cool. And I, you know, again, when it's introduced for the first time, it's, it's introduced as the M151 gun dog. So mm -hmm. you you're supposed to kind of get that F14 Tomcat kind of association. And it's so funny. I played F19. Uh, I don't know. It was like on the MS DOS machine i don't know if you reviewed it back in your pc editing days but that's like i grew up on those things still didn't click for me because i was just so ready for um dogs to be electronic and weaponized um right but I, that's why i'm glad we have the clarification for that one uh, and I'm it's so funny clear it up for you because the mech is in the title I, I, yes. you have to make the book so big to be able to see these details but when you see when you see the the mech there you're like oh Great. And immediately I'm put into Titanfall. So my next question is how much sci-fi research did you have to do here? Are you playing Titanfalls? Are you looking into sort of like 
future scenarios that are likely for the human race? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's really, really kind of like pop culture historical research. Again, I really, it kind of bugged me that there's, I, ultimately you just want to write the things that you want to read and see, right? And so I've always wanted more, like mechs are so cool, right? They're so cool. Like, why don't we have more of them? They're so popular in Japan and in, and in, and in um, Asian culture, Asian mm-hmm. popular culture, in manga, anime. Why don't we have them here? Like when I, when I say I want to do something with a mech, people go, oh, like Robot Jocks, which is a movie from like almost 50 years ago, like from the 80s. Um, or sometimes people will reference Pacific Rim, which yep. is kind of more of a kaiju movie, but technically they are mech. So I was thinking about like, what is the defi- what is the actual like dictionary definition of a mech? And if it's if it's a big, if it's a giant armored weapon that walks around on uh, on legs and is piloted by you know a human operator, that's a mech. Mm-hmm. So like, tra- like transformers aren't mechs, right? They're robots, right? Because they're fully autonomous. And so there's a very specific kind of subset of like boxes you have to check to say oh yeah this is a mech uh and i was looking i did i, I played titan for one back in the day and i remember i remember when i was researching this i went back and looked at some of the titan designs mm-hmm. titans are, are much smaller than 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 gun dogs in the book they're described as like 60 feet tall and they weigh 600 tons they're big they're like half they're not as big as a jaeger which is like i don't know like 600 feet tall they're massive uh but i wanted something that, that felt like truly big mm. um and i had to do a lot of like well how i literally had to do a lot of weird stuff like well, how big is 60 feet tall Right. And like, what is, what is it? 18 meters? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. It's well, I'm, I'm just like, what does it look like in real terms? But yeah, roughly, rough, roughly three foot to a uh, three feet to a meter. And so what is that? So what is it? Well, it's about 10 humans high, basically. Mm. Right. And so, you know, I, I did little kind of miniature um, like, kind of drawings, like scale models. Like, okay. Here's, here's, here's how big a person would be next to something that is 60 feet tall. And if it's 60 feet tall, does it, can it really weigh 600 tons or is that too heavy? And I had to do all of this kind of stuff because if I, if I don't get it right, I guarantee you I'm going to hear from readers who are going to tell me that I didn't get it right. So, and then how fast can they move? Like, how, like the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, navigation. They move specifically from like one place to another, like, and, and people know how many miles that is. So like, how fast is it moving? What's its top speed? Like all of that stuff kind of has to make sense. I don't think that's necessary for the story, but those are the, when you deal with science fiction, there's always going to be a subset of super nerds who will go get their maps out and tell us, well, you said it was moving at 30 miles an hour and it covered this much terrain in these many days. Trust me, I worked on Star Wars. I know what it's like hearing from like nerds who, who don't think that you, you, you've done it correctly. Um, so try to make it as, as um, realistic as possible in terms of the, you know, the technical details, even though we're dealing with stuff that's completely made up. But all I really care about is like, do the characters feel real? And does the story mm. feel real to you? The, the, the technical details are kind of secondary. But it's funny because like when it's your book, you're responsible for it. But I feel like if it's in a script, it's like that's the art department or like, you know, that's someone else's problem. You know, you don't have to get bogged down by the science as much behind these things, I'm guessing. Yeah, when I, when I worked on Star Wars, I had the luxury, like our office was literally right next door to the ILM art department they had put right next to us. So when we said like, okay, let's do something, like, it was like, let's do the, we created a new ship for Rogue One called the U-Wing, which is a troop carrier. And, but I didn't know what it looked like. I just, we just knew that it was going to like, in the same way that the, the X-Wings and Y-Wings are called that because they vaguely look like a letter an X and a letter Y. It was like, mm-hmm. well, let's do a U-Wing. And so it's vaguely going to look like a letter U, I guess. But like beyond that, I had no idea. And then you go next door to ILM and they've, and they've created it. Oh my God, it looks a million times better than anything I could have come up with. Wow. And with, and with Gundog, so I specifically, I had like a very, very vague idea in my head of what it looked like. Uh, and I had reference for other mechs, but like it, the, it's specifically not described to like in, in like hyper in hyper detail in the book because I kind of feel like 
when you read a book, it looks like what you think it looks like. Yeah. Right? And so ra rather than say, no, it looks exactly like this and exactly like that. I mean, there are certain things that are, it has two arms and two legs and it has you know, kind of a narrow torso and a barrel, big barrel body and things like that. But I want to try, when, I, when you're writing a book, um, when, you're, when you're watching a movie, that thing is designed and shown to you, right? There's nothing left to the imagination. You know exactly what it looks like. I think there's a more fun opportunity when you write a book to like describe it to you. like, this is a giant 60 foot tall, you know, uh, mech and give them a few details. But I, the, 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 in my experience, the reader's always going to decide for themselves what it looks like. They'll piece it together. So don't, don't tell them they're wrong, basically. Let, let, let them have it imagine, mm. imagine it their way. And then when I finally had some concept art done for the, for the audio version that we did last year, um, I gave the artists some specs. And again, even I didn't say, well, it's kind of like this big and it has big, uh, big guns for arms and stuff like that. And then when I got the, the art back for the first time, I was like, oh, that's what it looks like. In the same way that people would tell me like, oh, you've written a horror book or a, or a mm. comedy show without realizing it. The artist came back and said, here's what, here's what your gun dog looks like. like <laughs> this oh, is yeah. what you so, brought so to does. life. Yeah. But yeah. way better than I could have drawn it. So yeah, it's, it's cool. Uh, another question here from uh, Will P. Did you always know that you wanted to include passages written from the perspective of the mech or was that something that you added in later to provide additional information to the reader, to which I would like to tack onto that? Did you want to, like, because this was a, quite a linear um, story progression, knowing where both sort of pieces are on on the map uh providing extra like an extra layer of tension knowing that they're sort of like on the trail is that is that yeah no it's, it's again a really really good question because it's something i had to figure out as uh, how to execute this in the writing it was decided early on i decided early on that the bad guys in this movie the mech are essentially a machine they're an alien race but they're a machine race right they're completely automated like who made them or where they come from we don't know uh but essentially essentially it's like if skynet um came from another planet right mm. they're drones they're machines they're not they don't really talk um or emote they're not they're not characters in a sense they're just these bad things like zombies essentially um and if you're doing a story where you're being pursued if you think about like you know the fugitive or something like that typically you're typically you're the terminator typically you are going to cut back to the bad guy that's doing the pursuing so because you never want to lose that sense of urgency right you always mm -hmm. want to be reminded oh yeah there's someone's chasing them they've got to keep moving because someone's right behind them it was difficult and you and you can do that in a movie with the terminator right because the terminator doesn't emote like you know you don't want to have a conversation with the terminator but just seeing him like go from place to place and show up you're oh yeah he's still looking for them he's like he's right on their trail one step behind them and that's how you keep the urgency going in a book, it was tricky because I had these bad guys that essentially are Terminators, right? So I can't do a scene with a bunch of mechs standing around going like, well, where do you think they're like, That's just not, <laughs> you, can't treat them, you can't treat them like they're humans. And so, um, but, you, but I had to have that sense of urgency. You can't just be, oh, I kind of feel like the mech might be on our trail. It's got to be more specific than that. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to check in with them and demonstrate that they, that they were always were being pursued. Because, you know, they, our heroes in the, in the book, they escape from an alien prison camp and then the aliens send trackers and hunters to, to track them down and recover them um and you i've got i had to find a way to demonstrate that to illustrate that to show that so that people would get that sense of urgency and so that so what i came up with was the idea of these little these little dispatches that were you know the the, the commander that is sent the tommy lee jones essentially that is sent to bring back harrison ford 
is anytime he anytime he goes to a location and like picks up their trail or checks in somewhere sends back a little dispatch and so mm. I, to like to, to central command and i just wrote them in I, I, so i wrote those and in in the in, in the audio version it's done by troy baker doing i didn't voice. even know it was him you kept That's saying Troy. troy's on it troy's on it and i'm like when am i going to hear him not he's even realizing that yeah. he's, he's the met commander <laughs> um and so like they had to be distinct from the other the other um because like shannon I, I didn't want shannon to do those sections right because it wouldn't sound right and so troy came in and played the met commander in the audio version and for the book, they're just obviously they're done in a very different typeface. The whole book is written in a specific kind of serif typeface. And then when we typeset the book, it's like these sections need to look like a computer printout. Like they, mm. they, they need to look and feel very alien and different. And I can do some of that. I can write it in such a way that the language feels very stilted and formal. It's not conversational. It's kind of like, you know, a bureaucrat writing a, writing a report. report. Very, very, mm-hmm. very, you know, you know, very Spartan. Um, and it's kind of scary in that way, right? Because you, you keep you being oh, these these are these are machines. Um, but you know, there was a really really good question because it was it was a problem that I had to solve. As soon as I like the idea that these the, the mech were these alien robots, but it's, well, then how do you do scenes with them? And mm. so there aren't really. It's like if we ever made a movie, it's something we would we would have to solve as well because that would be presented differently. Um, there's only a couple of scenes where the where the heroes actually like meet the bad guys and actually interact with them. For the most part, it's really just these little interludes, and also it's a nice way to break up the story. Like I've got you, you know, you, you, it's a very small story. There's only a handful of speaking characters in the whole thing. Um, every now and again, it's nice to just like pull away and do something very different. Mm. And also, it, there's nice ways to insert story into that. For example, if the mech figures something out and then send the information back to base, yep. I did it a few times. So, oh, that's something our heroes don't know. Like they don't know that the mech know that, and that's kind of cool. Is Fork so still do, alive? You, yeah, yeah. Is, is Fork still alive? Do, where, where do they think they are? Have they? Are they still looking for them? Um, what's going on with Sam is Sam being interrogated is he he being tortured yeah that stuff's really cool Mm. Um, something that I really liked at the start um, especially with post-apocalyptic you know uh, take takeovers um, invasions invasions conquests uh, I thought it was really interesting that um, it was put out there the exposition look we had a peaceful sort of mech alien race coming down that we're going to share resources and provide uh this is spoiler territory by the way if you haven't read the book we're we're going pretty spoily but this is the start of the book and i'm kind of setting up the premise here but if you don't want anything spoiled for you i apologize get out um this is a big spoiler i i I love i'd love to talk about it but just be aware this is a big spoiler it is a big spoiler the book yeah um so yeah no again you're picking up on all the things that this is actually my favorite interview that i've done about the book because you're the only person that actually i think genuinely read it and paid attention well my my big thing here is as a reader i thought it was really interesting and i kind of want to pick your brain on how you see things because you you made it very believable that humans are shit and that oh, and I that mean, we deserved what not, we... that's not a stretch right to get you to believe that no I mean, you live, you live in, the, in 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 the world um but yeah, so the, the, this is an idea that I always had from the beginning. And it comes back to this idea of like, what do you want your story to be about? Like thematically, what is it about? Um, like, what do you want to say? Uh, like, what question do you want to pose? Or what statement do you want to make? And on a human level, on a story level, the story is really just about, you know, a girl who um, is reunited with her mother who, thought, who she thought was dead, right? And that's the emotional core of the story. And someone who kind of learns to kind of stand up and rise up against uh, bullies essentially um and but then on a broad like what's the broader idea and the idea was you know we live in an age of propaganda and and fake news and post-truth and deep fakes and no one knows what's real anymore right 
Um, and it's been established, you know, for hundreds of years that 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 this is the best the best way to control people and subdue them and have them do what you want them to do is to is to convince them to believe what you want them to believe. Mm. Um, and so the book begins and ends with these with these footnotes with these with these passages written directly by Dakota, the hero of the story, and they both start with the words, "Here's what I know." And she kind of lays out the way that she sees the world at the beginning of the story, and then she does it again at the very end, and she lays out the world the way she sees it now. And yeah. It's fundamentally changed, right? Because she's she's seen the truth. And so the idea was is that after the mech, so essentially the mech came to Earth like th- I think it's thirty, 30 years ago, thirty because they fought because they fought a war that lasted for ten years, and then it's twenty years post after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And also there's a little clues of why did they kill off everyone over a certain age? And then you realize there's a reason for all of that. Um, that they came, it was a classic kind of independence day. They just showed up and, and started a war and started invading us. And we fought back and in the end it wasn't enough. And they conquered the world and put us all in prison camps and like killed everyone over the age of 20. Um, and what you realize by the end, and we all now live in prison camps. And uh, what we realize is, is that everyone was raised to believe that the war was their fault, right? A whole generation of people have grown up being told by the mech and by their elders that this was um that humans caused it that the the mech showed up we come in peace let's do a peaceful exchange we need you know water and things because our homeworld's dying and and we'll give you incredible technology and medicine and science and like this can be great we can all live in peace you know like first contact but humans in their in their infinite greed essentially decide well we can just take it right these guys don't seem like they have any weapons like they're not a warlike race why don't we just take what we want which again has been obviously a a facet of, of human history, right? Whether yeah. it be the conquest of of, of North America uh, by you know, the conquistadors and the, the British and everyone Columbus, like we, oh, nice, nice planet. We'll take it. Like we'll just we'll just have that because yeah. we're stronger than you. And it's it, it's it's a kind of stain on human history, like so many times um, throughout. And Dakota talks about this. And so the idea is is that the mech could probably keep us under control anyway, but it would be harder if they if we hated them and thought that they they take had taken our world away from us. But by convincing us that it was our fault and they came here offering us everything and we decided to try and destroy them instead. It takes the fight being, out of them. And now we're, be, yeah, and now we're being punished essentially for, for, for our own sins. There's, yeah, when no one has any will to fight, right? Because mm. they just feel like they're, they, they've kind of made their own bed and now they've got a lie in it. And a big part of what Dakota is doing is, is trying to show people what really happened so it'll inspire them to stand up and fight. And I think that, um, again, that's the closest thing that the story has to kind of like, like a moral or a social or a political theme. And again, I, I, I think it's pretty timely these days, you know, again, in the age of, of, of Trump and alternative facts and you know, the election was rigged and all this kind of nonsense and people believe what, what, what get, they get told to believe. Yeah. I just, I, it just felt, it didn't feel like, a, I, when I was running, I said, is this a stretch? Like, could, could we have a whole generation of people that have grown up believing that their history is, was, you know, was, was something when the reality was something else? And I haven't had a single person complain about no. it because it, it, again, we live in it. Sadly, the world provided the context for that to seem really believable. Uh, yeah. And the fact that knowing history has repeated itself over the years and every single flaw basically that the world has done, you can trace it back to greed being the motivator behind it. So that it made absolute sense to me, but it was so interesting. Again, we're going spoilers here. When you do find out the truth and you start rooting for humankind. So I actually want to know from you, what do you wish the biggest takeaway is that people have after reading this book? 
Um, I, I think I'm, I think mostly just hope that they have a good time reading it. It's not, it's not a book that's going to win, a, you know, sci-fi awards or anything. It's not meant to be like a prestige kind of book. I really just wanted to like indulge my love of big giant robots kicking the <laughs> shit out of aliens and just have fun with it and just have it be an, an old fashioned like popcorn adventure. And it's like I mentioned before, it's a short book, right? It's way shorter than my previous book. And you'll notice that even though it's a shorter book, I think it has more chapters than the previous book because I, I deliberately, I don't know if you noticed this, but I deliberately wrote them in very, very short chapters. Mm -hmm. Like some of the chapters are only a few pages long. And the idea was like, if you keep hitting, I don't know if this works or not, it's kind of a trick, but like if you keep hitting chapter breaks, you, it feels like the story's moving quickly, right? It's, oh, we're on the next chapter, we're on the next chapter, we're on the next chapter. If it gives the, set, the story the sense of propulsion, which doesn't replace like the actual propulsion of the story the story needs to keep moving there's always something happening but by breaking it down into lots of lots of little short chapters all apart from the last chapter which is just one epic battle and mm. then it's meant to kind of feel like breathless like oh man when am i going to get a break this book yeah. usually gives me a break no not this time you have to go through the whole battle um it just felt like structurally a, a, a way to make the story feel fast and it my, actually my, feels like time like a minute goes by and like when you're being chased time is so crucial and i yeah. just you kind of feel that and, through reading and, yeah mm. and 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 time and time is completely um relative right it's like if you're sitting sitting waiting for a bus time goes by really quickly if you're playing like a video game that you love it's like oh shit six o'clock already like time goes by quickly more quickly almost later depending on how you perceive it uh, but that's also one of my favorite comments that i've got back now the book is out there in the world is like and I, when i first saw it i was like should i be happy about this but i am it's like people saying like i read it in one sitting or yeah. i read it over I read it over the weekend or I read it, I read the whole thing on a flight, which, you know, it makes me like, is there enough there? Like, did, are people done with it? When you're done with it, are you going to feel like you got your 25 bucks worth or whatever? Um, but I think it's less about length and more about like how much you enjoy the time you spend with the book. And I think the fact that people are reading it or essentially binging it right yeah. all in one go um, is hopefully testament to the fact that it is propulsive and it is structured in a way mm -hmm. I, I just wanted i just wanted to do an old, like an old-fashioned page turner and i think i think it does that at least it does i agree with that um, i've got a couple of interesting questions here from readers um uh, since th this is from vaden since the mech are conquerors are we going to meet any of the other enslaved species in sequels and i so, guess it spawns a conversation about sequels because this is a hella setup yeah, the whole store. I mean, the whole thing when you think about it is really just set up for the for the for the next one, right? Theoretically, um, because you know by the time they get to the industry, you realize that they have more. There's not just one gun dog. There's like a lot of them. You got an army. Um, mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, the mech are now sending re, you know reinforcements from their home world. It's good. the idea is like if this was the first battle in whatever the next chapter would be, another book or whatever. Now it's the war. Right yeah. now it's going to be a full fledged war for for the planet. Uh, and it would be far larger in scale. I was always thinking about like alien versus aliens, right? You know, one alien, very tight, very confined versus aliens, which is just like all out, you know, war against, you know, legions of aliens, uh, that it would be far, far greater in scale. Um, but I couldn't really get into it too much by virtue of the fact that everything's told through the lens of these characters that just don't know much about the world, right? Mm. They, they, you know, they only know what they've been, like told. most people in this, mo most people in this world can't even read, right? Because there's no, there's, all they've been completely severed from their own knowledge and history they don't know um like when they when they when they cross the border into south dakota they literally don't know what that means like what is south dakota because no one's taught them that um and so they've got what's this mount rushmore kind of, right mount rushmore they, they, they just call it the four faces right because they don't know what it is mm. um and so they're totally disconnected from their own history 
Um, they don't know who the mech are. They know the mech came from another planet. They don't know anything about them other than that. I think there's a conversation where where Dakota says to Falk at one point, like, do you think they've done this on other worlds? Like, is you know, they're and eventually you realize that they have. Yeah. I think Rosie, when they meet Rosie, she says, like, yeah, they're a conqueror's piece. This is what they do. They like like they'll like attack a planet, strip mine it, and so there's nothing left, and then move on. So yeah, I think there probably are lots of other worlds out there that have that have gone through the same thing um with the mech but I, again i deliberately one of the reasons why i wanted to do like robot like aliens that don't really emote or say very much is i just think that like the terminator is scary right because that whole remember that speech it can't be bargained with it can't be reasoned with it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead like that idea is terrifying right this mm -hmm. thing just keeps coming and doesn't have any human emotions or weaknesses that you can use to your advantage. It's just a machine that is designed to kill you and do nothing else. Well, that's a huge trope, that. isn't it? A trope is to try and use compassion. You know, you try to humanize them. You know, don't you remember you were a kid once? What would other people think of, the, you know, the young you? And so you're right when you dehumanize and when it's like you've got that sense of detachment and compassion won't work and it's just, just all out warfare. I just, I just kind of feel like something's more scary when, when you don't know much about it, right? When it's mysterious. Um, and so if we knew everything about the mech and what their homeworld was called and where they came from and what they do and how they think and who somebody presumably created them, right? Because they're not an organic race. Um, I just, I, to me, especially if you think like, well, this could be a bigger story. And if it does, if there's, if there's never any more, then that's fine. Like it ends in a way that suggests there's more to come, but like they won, like, you know, they blew up the Death Star, right? In the, in, they blew up the Death Star in the first one. And if there's never any more, like if they had never made another movie after the first Star Wars, if Star Wars had been a flop, it still would have felt like a complete story, right? They kind of beat the Empire. And then when Star mm. Wars was a massive hit, they were like, oh shit, no, you didn't beat the Empire. There's still lots more of it. Cause we now need to go make more movies. So in success, you know, there is more story to tell. I, originally, originally, and I, this is one thing that I really talked myself down off quickly. There's, in my head, there's three parts to the story, and each one's bigger than the last. And I wrote on the, originally when I wrote the book, I wrote part, Gundog, part one of the Liberation Trilogy. Oh. And I was like, no, don't do that, because like, that's what happens. Because then, I remember, remember when they did Aragon? And yes! Like, Aragon the movie? Yes. And it was like, part one of the Dragon Balls trilogy, or whatever it was. <laughs> And then, but, there was, but, but there was never another part. It felt really presumptive and arrogant to say, mm. well, obviously this is just part one, right? Because there's going to be lots more. No, you never assume that. Right. And so I really wanted it to feel like a standalone story though. If there isn't ever any more, um, you don't feel like you were left like, well, what happens next? What happens next? Like, it's nice that people are out. I mean, I deliberately left Falk out there a little bit as like a hanging thread, like what happened to him. Mm. If, I, if I never resolve it, it's not, I don't think it's the end of the world, but like if the book is successful, um we would get to go back and answer all of these all of these questions is that is that why you didn't let him smooch i just you know i don't know girls are icky and i <laughs> i literally no, have merch no, that is let I'm them smooch I'm terrible, at I'm terrible at love scenes which is weird because this thing that i just wrote has loads of sex in it this <laughs> yeah. um but like i don't know like i always kind of feel like and there's you know there's no love scene in rogue one right and we got praised for that Mm. right mm. people said like, oh, i'm glad that they, it's i i just feel like if you've got a, a a man and a woman or or two characters right who could well be romantically attracted to one another i just don't feel Runyon like is pining but, he's pining over i know her. i feel bad for him poor Runyon. Not, well here's the here's okay if you want to get really deep I'd let's say go this is where probably the most personal i've never said this to anyone before so Runyon, who's the guy that is replaced, you know, again, so let's talk about it, right? So Falk, who you think is going to be the guy, right? He's the beefcake. He's the smart one. He's the one that you want to be with. 
we kill him off. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, want, I, I wanted to do, I, I really wanted to pull the rug out from the audience at one point and like have the audience be mad at me. Like, I'm going to kill a character that you really like. Yeah. Um, but it was, again, it's meant to like hopefully bring home like this is not fun, right? This is a harsh world and people are going to die. And, you know, the, the, none of these characters have plot armor just because they're a major character in the story. And so we killed off the, main, the, 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 the kind of the hunky guy and replaced him with like the nerdy guy. That Dakota doesn't really want to be with it part, just just simply, and it's not nothing. It's it's not his fault, but he's just not the other guy, right? And I'll tell you something. And before I met my, until I met my wife, I was the other guy my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so like, I was always like, oh, I was, I, I really like this girl, but like she prefers this other guy, and I'm there was always a fault, and I was always Runyon. So I related to Runyon a lot, like kind of the the nerdy kid that just couldn't get girls to be interested in because it was always like a better option. And so there might have been a little bit, wish, might have been a little bit of wishful fulfillment. Like, well, he, now I get to kill the other guy. Right? Mm, <laughs> yeah, and Runyon's really smart, and he's got a huge growth and development, and he's actually a much better guy if you had the and, chance to get to know him. And it's a, it's a better love. I mean, the Falk one, you kind of like. He's he's all that, right? He's a little bit of a Mary Sue. Like he's good looking, he's smart, he's confident. Dakota li- likes him right away. There's an attraction mm. there right away. Um, and then when we take, I say, I'm looking at the chat when I said I killed him off. When I when I took him off when I took him out of the story, um, presumed dead, um, and he may be. Um, I think I think the Runyon story is the better is the better story because she has further to go with him, right? In yeah. terms of like I don't like you to begin with because again it's not your fault, but you're not who I you're not who I was supposed to finish this journey with, right? It was supposed to be the other guy, yeah. and so he starts like twenty yards back to begin with, and ends the fact that he ends up kind of earning her trust and her respects and they get to the point where they almost kind i just i just thought it, i just think it's always more interesting especially when it comes to that will they won't you like romantic stuff i just think it's always more interesting when like you get right there but you don't quite do it and again especially if the, if you want to do more storytelling like don't you know blow all of your all of your uh you know your ideas right away but um no i just i don't know for, for the most part unless it's really important to the story I don't, I've never felt like a romantic subplot or love scenes or romantic chemistry between two characters is something you, well, you got to have that, right? Well, you got to add that on, even if it doesn't feel like it's organic to the story. No, if it is, if it isn't, it's, I never felt like it was appropriate for them to do that. Right. And so, cause they're, you know, as you're going to they're both very, she's very guarded. It also takes her, her mum's so now there. Her mum's there. Yeah, well, yeah. Plus the mother's like constantly, you don't even know when she's in the room, right? She so that's sees freaky. everything. <laughs> she sees everything, right? Cause she's a hologram and she's plugged into like every system. And so, yeah, she's going to hear you even when you're whispering, she's going to see everything. It's like, what are you doing? Get your hands off. Yeah. Get your hands off each other. And she I'm, still you know, has like watching. the mother side of her as well, which I think is a beautiful juxtaposition. I'd love to talk about Rosie. I know we're running out of time. I've still got like 10 questions. But, I know um, I talk too much. I'm sorry. No, no. But I think the the concept of sort of like being able to upload your brain to become an AI entity. So it's you and it's how you thought and it's all your memories, but you no longer are sort of a corporeal person. You are in the ether or whatever it's called. As a parent... Is this something that you would do knowing that your memories would live forever and your essence could continue to father your children even when you had passed? I think it's a really freaky thing to think about. And it's, I kind of, it wasn't something, I wasn't thinking about this as, as, in, the, as in the conversation when I was first writing it. Because when I first started writing this years ago, AI wasn't what it is now. 
right? And um, but now it's very much part of the conversation. And this is stuff we've seen it in Black Mirror. Yeah, you'll see. It in, um, I just recently saw my friend Gareth's new movie, The Creator. They 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 it's all about kind of a war against AI and a lot of like, well, at what point is it? At what point does AI just become life? Like, and it's it, that that and that thing has as much right to exist as yeah. you do. Um, you know, one of the greatest Star Trek episodes of all time, Measure of a Man, did this with data, right? They, are you are you alive? Are you real? Do you have the right to exist or are you just a machine? Um, and with Rosie, the idea was I wanted to do, I wanted I wanted Dakota to be re- reunited with her mother, even though she is definitively, definitively dead. Um, and the way to do that was to have her kind of preserved as this, you know, kind of AI consciousness. And if you ask, I try to make this very clear in the book, like that's not a copy of her. That's not, like a, a mimic or whatever like in in every way that matters it is absolutely her because every single part of her is preserved like they mm. mapped every part of her brain uh you know and your brain is just electrical and chemical activity right there's no i, I think we'll get to a point where that can be like replicated and like we'll, we'll have to take the word artificial out of intelligence it'll just, it'll just be non-organic intelligence right wow. it won't be artificial anymore yeah it will be real and these machines will think and feel and be capable of the same emotional reactions, you know, joy and, and sorrow and anger and fear and all the things that we have. And that's Rosie, right? It's captured every part of her memory. Every Her soul is basically there. So you, she really is talking to her mother. The only difference is there's no physical body. You can't get um, a hug. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the biggest test for that is when the scene when like you think she's died and it's she's just that box and Dakota's trying to get her to come back. Is like, is that going to, I was worried, like, is that going to work? Like mm. the, the audience has to believe that she's real as well, right? That she's not just a box for you to feel their sadness in that moment. So it's very kind of, you know, high risk, high reward stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, no, it was just it was just a fun idea to play with. And again, with the holographic stuff, it's just, um, Rose is actually my favorite character in the book. I really like her a lot because I love how she kind of modulates back and forth between the mother, you know, I'll tuck you in, sweetie. And they're like, oh, your feet soldier. Cause she's also like her commanding officer. Right? She's her boss. Uh, she's a superior. So it's just really, really fun to, to play around with like different versions of her. I know, like going, hey, I wasn't in your life the last sort of right. like however many years, dec- decade plus, um, and I'm the one that can conserve sort of like your your early memories and tell you about that. And I want to be your mother in this moment, but this is a life and death situation. Yeah, and she's, and she's a very different character because she's the only one that's like a remnant of the old world, right? She's the only one who remembers like the post-war Mm. world I, I didn't put it in the book because it's it, it, it wouldn't work in a book format but i always imagine that in like the tv or the film version like the, the rosie's like constantly playing like all her old records in, oh. the, in the cockpit like all her like all of her like favorite disco records and stuff that none of these kids have ever heard before right because they have no, they have no concept of music or whatever um but then it so, also yeah, heightens like, her responsibility where it's like this needed to happen and she was chosen uh over everyone else to have this happen to her and now she's single-handedly responsible for all of earth's history i mean yeah they, 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 I mean, there's you know there's there's something powerful about the idea of something being the last one right i mean this is very very much similar to the to the last star fighter the last star fighter was like it was advanced prototype if we lose this one that's it mm. same thing with gundog if we lose this one that's it you know denzel carrying the last bible if you lose this one that's it so you, you have very very high stakes right because everything rests on this and I, I think a couple of times rosie kind of reminds the characters and, and by extension the the audience the reader if this doesn't work there's no one else right this mm. is all on us and that you know, that's that's how you get to high stakes I also liked uh, with the book writing tropes, usually if it's like a chosen one, which in this instance it, it kind of delves into the chosen one um, t- storytelling, but yeah. u- usually with that you'll have the prophet or the sage or the mentor at, in the beginning and then that person will die. 
um, you know, Obi Wan with Star Wars. You right. know, so you'll get a you'll get a little taste that there's a much bigger world than what you've known, and then they're gone, and then right. they're set on their own for the rest of it. You did that in reverse, which I really loved, and I think with. I did. That's so interesting because I never even thought about it that way. I yeah. like, honestly, you're my favorite person I've spoken to about this book because I feel like you really like thought about it. And my favorite thing is when people come back to me with their thoughts on the book and it's stuff like, oh, shit, I never thought about that, but that's cool. And I'm going to take credit for that now. Thank you very much. And it's really good. Well, I liked it as well because it actually doubles down with the whole post-apocalyptic um, storytelling, which is you have to have a glimmer of hope for the story to stay alive. When everything is desolate, when there's nothing left and you you need hope as the fuel, um, I thought it was really interesting that the then sage and information and that sort of trope, which is usually at the beginning, it was almost a reward at the end, which then became the hope. And you yeah. also were able to say, well, it's not a given. You know, I can take yeah. it away as well. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I yeah. worried a little bit when I was the, the way that I wanted the book to set the tone for like, this world is really grim and like we, things have to, this is the world is broken, right? It needs to be fixed. The world needs a hero. Um, but the first couple of chapters are just basically people essentially living in like, futuristic Auschwitz like it's horrible right yeah they're, 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 they're you know they're being incinerated and it's the worst they're basically human slaves it's the, the worst and it's really really the first couple of chapters of the book are really grim and the idea was meant to be the first half of the book is meant to be kind of hard and then when she actually gets in the cockpit then it's like payback time and you can start having fun but it takes a while to get there and so it's like there had to be something early in the story like I said that first you can't wait too long for like the first glimmer of hope and mm. so for me the first sign that is when fault shows up, when yeah, shows up the map on his arm right it's like you're, you're, i need you to come with me it's like oh shit there's something here as soon as there's a thread to start pulling on you can start getting engaged in it and that but it has to come early i think structurally which is why i think it's like either like, either at the end of chapter two or the only in the short chapters it, it, end of chapter two beginning of chapter three there's like the story really okay we've set the tone you understand the world is terrible everyone's miserable but mm. Here comes this guy with a map on his arm. You did yeah. a really great job as well with Sam, where Sam was supposed to be the protector, the older brother. He right. was supposed to be in charge. And, like, having the masculine, feminine energies. I lost you. You've, I like, you're on, you muted. Oh, I did. I got so excited. Go. I gesticulated into my <laughs> microphone and muted myself. I do that as well. This has a capacity <laughs> button on it, and I brush against it all, all the, the time. time and I... Oh, and, of course, Trisha oh Hershberg is rating. Hello, Trisha. We will get Hi, a wrap it up. Maybe I can get a few more of my questions out now. Yay. Uh, for oh, those that are just... You 496 for those that are just joining, a big hello. I'm Maud from Maud's Book Club, and we're actually chatting to Gary Witter, who is an amazing screenwriter. He's written Rogue One, a Star Wars story. He's done The Book of Eli, and now he's got a sci-fi book called Gundog, which we've just been talking about um, in a no-spoiler kind of uh, plot. Well, it's very, very well, spoilery. But, but, but to people... not spoil it for now, Gundog, we, actually, I'll get now, you to do Now it. we have to go back to, to non-spoiler territory. That's it. There's a bunch of people in here that I would like to sell a book to and I don't want to spoil it for them. Well, I mean, I should get you to do it then. Can you tell tell us about what Gundog is in a spoiler for Yeah, so I, I, as a Twitch streamer myself, I know this is good streamer etiquette, right? When we get a big raid, introduce yourself so people know who you are. Um, so, uh, yeah, Gundog, which do I, yes, I do have one here. I've got two if you need one. You've got, you've got, so here's another one here. It just came out last week. I'm really proud of it. It's just kind of an old-fashioned kind of science fiction story about a young woman who grows up in post-apocalyptic world 20 years after it's been taken over and um, uh, uh, conquered by aliens, a machine race known as the Mech, and everyone's basically grown up as, as a um, enslaved by this population of, um, of, of aliens that have conquered the world. 
until one day she realizes that she might be the heir to the last uh, of what is called a gun dog, which is the, basically these extremely high tech mechs that the that the that the that the U.S. military built as a way to try and fight the aliens off, but it didn't work. But they have this advanced prototype. Essentially, it's about a girl who gets to gets to strap herself into a sixty foot tall, six hundred ton uh, war mech and fight off um, an alien invasion. So it's just very, like I said to you earlier, it's not going to win any awards, but it's really fun. It's a page turner. People seem to be really enjoying it. It's just you can read it like in one long sitting. I've had people tell me they read they read the whole thing in in, in one day or a weekend or on a flight. It's if you like kind of ass kicking military militaristic uh, sci fi. If you like the last Starfighter. If you like Rogue One. If you like top gun it's it's very much all of those things trisha actually just saying she was re-listening to the first episode which is available i mean you can listen to them uh on your twitch which is twitch.tv slash is it gary witter or g gary witter yeah gary or you can Whitter. just go to any people it's so funny a number of people saying is there is there an audio book i did this in a weird way where i self-produced the audio book adaptation myself and that actually came out first it came out last year so if you prefer to listen to your books rather than you know sit and read them um, Shannon Woodward from HBO's Westworld and Troy Baker from The Last of Us did an incredible job uh, narrating nine hours of audio, which is all available for free. Uh, we never charged a penny for it on pretty much every podcast service. Uh, you can go to Realm.fm, you can go to Spotify, Apple Music, Audible. They all have it and it's all free. So Look you can listen Gundog. to the whole thing for free. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and that's Gundog. Uh, but then if you actually prefer to kind of sit and read a book in the old fashioned way, either as on paper or as an ebook, um, then that is available now at Amazon and, you know, all places where books are sold. Also, I really want to talk about the fact that you got um, Austin Wintery, who you've known for oh a little God. while, to do an amazing score for it. Now, I didn't know that he actually pretty much had like a score for a big portion of this book, but you ended up bookending it um, to start and to end the episodic uh, sort of way that you did it with your podcast episodes. It was really well done, though. That was when so we, fun. Yeah, when we did the... Um... Uh, the original Twitch live broadcast, which we kind of did like an old fashioned live radio show and everyone could listen to it together. Austin wrote these for the waiting room, you know, when the stream countdown is starting, Austin wrote these overtures, these nine different overtures, and each one was different and each one reflected the tone of what was going to come in the episode. In the podcast version, you don't hear any of that. You hear like mm. the open, you hear like the theme music. It's only like 20 seconds or whatever because you want to get into the story. But Austin's nuts. Like I've been the fan of Austin's work for many years. He wrote the soundtrack for Journey, which is my all-time favorite video game soundtrack, one of my all-time favorite games. I asked him to do this thinking he might write me like a 60-second intro, like front and back, like opening and closing credits. He went away and wrote like an hour of of original music and put together like a full orchestra. Uh, Wouldn't take a penny of my money. I didn't try terribly hard to pay him, to be honest, but when (laughs) I did try, he he, he rebuffed me. Um, And put... and, and, and. that is that is now like a, you can go get that on um that's also on apple music and all the places there's like a full uh digital soundtrack album that austin put out um wow if you just like to listen to it and it's that's amazing as well uh, like, what... like as audiobooks go we ended up kind of going like way above and beyond yeah also um will is asking in the chat uh what led you to release your book as a nine-part audio series instead of the more traditional route I originally, I was during the pandemic, I was toying with the idea of like just doing something all by myself. And as a writer in Hollywood, I get tired of people pulling the rug out from under me at the last mm. minute because I've worked on many movies that got canceled or I've been fired off the movie. And I, I write in this constant state of anxiety where I am um, 
worried that all the work's going to be for nothing because I'm going to be fired or the movie's going to get canceled. I've, I've been through all these heartbreaks before. And I thought, well, if I keep this small, if I just self-publish a book and self-produce an audio version and I don't have to ask for anyone else's money or permission, no one can pull the rug out from under me because I own the rug, right? It's my rug. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 so no, and so I never have to worry about it. It's just going to find an audience. And I'm fortunate enough to have enough of a, of a following from Star Wars and Eli and kind of funny and my time on PC Gamer and Walking Dead and Batman and other things that I've done that I've got, you know, add them all up. I think I've got like a couple of hundred thousand followers on social media. So if I say, hey, I've made something new when I go check it out, I know that at least some people will go look. So I know I can get, put a story in front of an audience. And so the original plan was to self-publish the book. And I thought, well, I have to do the audio version as well because audio is a huge part of the, the marketplace. Like something like one in every three books that get sold are people who listen to books. Wow. So if you want to self-publish a book, you can't leave those people out, right? And so I thought, it's audio. How hard can it be? Well, it <laughs> turns out like to do anything well, it is really hard to do good audio. Uh, but I'm very fortunate through my time working in Hollywood and, and, and I know a lot of cool people. I'm very fortunate in that regard. And so I've got Shannon... Uh, and Troy to do the voices. Um, Shannon narrated, did nine hours of audio in the studio. Um, I could never afford to pay her. She's like way, above, way out of my like pay range for like actually hiring her as an actor. But she did it as a favor for a friend and I'll, I'll always be grateful to her. She, she crushed it job. as well. She she's crushed so, it. She's so good. Yeah. She's so incredibly good. And Troy's incredible as well. Um, and so we put it, and the idea was to do it as a, like, like I, I didn't want to just dump it all as an audio, but the, the, the idea originally was to do these kind of live Twitch broadcasts where each episode, each week, almost like a season of television, I would appear much as I do now uh, and say, oh, thanks for coming. Here's tonight's episode. And everyone could listen to it together in live chat and respond in real time as the story was happening. And then I would come back at the end and do like a little Q&A author discussion thing. And it was like, just felt like a different, way to mm. debut a new piece of material and like what what would happen like no one's done this before and it was really popular and then um we put it out as a podcast and that ended up being spectacular like genuinely like crazy successful like we were in, in, in both in sci-fi and like overall fiction categories we were like the top three podcasts um in like wow. 20 different countries around the world for like all nine weeks that we were putting out new episodes it was amazing um, and then the plan was then for me to self-publish the book just through Amazon Kindle, like right after, like literally is the last episode. And now the book's available for people that have been to, to read it, read it. Mm. Um, but the podcast was so successful that a publisher got in touch with me and said, Hey, would you like us to like put this out? We can do like a really nice hardcover and actually get you in Barnes and Noble and, you know, bookstores. Oh, that actually, that actually does sound kind of cool. <laughs> I still have full creative control, right? They still can't take Fine. the book away from me. There's I a lot of own... fear here, isn't there? Like I Listen, would love to unpack that. I've worked in, you, you ever go to like a dog shelter and there's that one dog, it's like, oh, that poor bastard, like has been kicked around his whole life, it's like kind of cowering in the corner. Mm. That's what screenwriters are like. Because we've just, we've, we've been kicked around the whole, and constantly like waiting for the other shoe to drop, what's the worst could happen? Um, and so I just really, really want to try to recalibrate the way that I do my original work in a way that lessens the chance of that happening. Mm. And so again, the key is if you never have to ask for anyone else's money or permission, you can go around the gatekeepers, go to YouTube, go to Apple Podcasts, go to uh, Amazon Kindle. You can find an audience. Wool, right? Hugh Howey's Wool, which went on to become Silo, biggest hit in the history of Apple TV. He self-published that book. Mm. Um, Andy Weir, who you of course oh, know from The Martian. Oh, for The Martian. He was putting up paragraphs and it got yeah, just on, just so on, much. On his, on, his, on his dinky little website. Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, started off as Twilight fan fiction and went on to become like a mega blockbuster. So... 
you know, you can do it that way. And I fully planned to do it until the, until the publisher came in, but it, but in order for them to publish it, like they can't just like chuck it out there in a week. Like it took mm. a while for them to design the book and, you know, the whole thing uh, and, and do distribution deals and get it in front of, you know, retailers and stuff. So it actually ended up being like almost a year. The podcast version debuted almost a year ago. Um, and yeah. it's only now that the actual book is out. So it's been really interesting this past week. A lot of people saying to me, oh, where's the audio? How much is the audiobook version? Like, Actually, that's free. Like, it's been out for a while. You need to go listen to it right now. It's just chopped up into nine pieces. But you can listen to the whole thing back to back. Same you won't say it, so I will. Support Gary and buy the book. <laughs> yes, please do. I don't know why he's telling you you can get it free. <laughs> You can, because some people, some people only will read, will only do audio, right? But for those, but and, and for those people, that version is there, and it, it's tremendous. And I can say that because what makes it tremendous is not me, but like Shannon and Troy and Austin, really, and Adam uh, uh, Nickerson, who did all the um, technical production behind the scenes. They made it good. I just gave them like the raw material to turn into something good. But with the book, it is all me, and I do get to be very proud of it. And uh, it's the only way that this thing's ever going to make any money, right? Because the audio version, I didn't make a penny. Mm. Um, uh, a couple of bucks from like advertising that went on certain versions of the podcast. But like, I ain't quitting my day job over it. Um, and I, I very much doubt the book will make much money either, but I really don't care. I make my money doing the, the Hollywood bullshit, except not right now because I'm on strike. Mm. Um, but I'm most, most, like, my day job is film and television. So when I do something as a book or a comic or whatever it might be like that to me is just, I don't do it to make money. I do it because it's the only way that I can like get original stories in front of an audience and try different things that typically I would not be able to get through, you know, the, the typical kind of Hollywood machine. So I've got two last questions. I know we've gone so far over, but we've also got all of Trisha's dragon riders in here as well. Um, one of them is going to be super, super quick, and one of them is going to tack on to what you've just said. Uh, but, okay. the, but the one I really quickly wanted to go through, uh, I believe it was Jay Buntrock who said it. Uh, I thought it was a really funny question. Where? Oh, one sec. Sorry, I have a document here. Jay Buntrock. Was the fact that the mech... Uh, can't go underwater, a slight nod to Shalman's movie Signs. No, which is, again, it's so funny how, because I obviously I did a movie with Knight, but I never, I never thought about that. That was actually something that I just, that was one of those things where I just made something up on the spot because I didn't, I had Gundog like slightly plotted, but like to the degree it was like, okay, they're on the run from the, like the degree to which the, the book was plotted was like, okay, they're on the run from the aliens for a while. Um, and they get into a bunch of tight scrapes that get out of them. And then eventually they find Mount Rushmore. Um, but that's literally was it. So like, I literally wrote them to a point where they were like literally backs against the wall with aliens closing. And I'm like, Oh shit, I better find, I better figure out a way for them to get out of this. And so in, and this is, I don't know, sometimes it's not, you never want to, sh you never want to, if you like the magician, right. You never want to show the audience like how you do your tricks, especially if it turns out the trick is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> in this case, it was just, it, I literally just made it up. Like, Oh, what if the Met can't go underwater? Done. Like, let's, just have, <laughs> let's have a jump in the water. And that, that, and it's never explained. It's just that they don't, they just don't like it. They've mm. for whatever reason, they don't go in the water. And so it, it, it was a way for me to give them an escape hatch when I, when I needed them to have one. I like it. Never it, comes yeah. up again. And, well, I mean, who knows where this is going? This is well like, again. Who knows? Feels like there's a lot of setup here. Um, right. My question that I wanted to talk, and it's about all your bodies of work, really. Um, my question that I've written is: You managed to use industry downtimes very efficiently. <laughs> In the pandemic, it saw you take over the internet with animal talking, and yes. now during the strikes, you're promoting your book. How do you do it? <laughs> um. 
I'm so glad you brought up Animal Talking, by the way. All yeah. the episodes are on my YouTube channel. <laughs> for those for those who don't know, we did um um we built a a, a replica of a of a classic kind of late night talk show set in the basement of my in-game house in the video game Animal Crossing and started to pretend to do a talk show that we broadcast on Twitch and it became so popular we ended up um being like the biggest talk show of this of summer 2020 because all the other talk shows were were dark and they couldn't they couldn't um, open their sets during covid and so i ended up with selena gomez and brie larson and danny treo and gorillas and um t-pain and all like like a-list celebrities coming and like hanging out in my stupid animal crossing house um uh, and and people were going going nuts for it. it was really really fun um and that was just again i it's interesting. I, I spend my whole life like trying to get these big serious projects uphill. And I'm like, oh, this is this one's really important to me. And like I always find a hard time getting them to like gain any traction. But it's the stupid idea. It's oh, what if I did a talk show in Animal Crossing? Like a stupid idea. Or what if we did Wordle but with dirty words? Like another <laughs> stupid idea. Those and those oh yeah, Sting. We had Sting on the show. Sting played live music on our show. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me that Sting was on the show. He's my friend, by the way. I got him to I got him to say that, and I have it on tape. Um, it's I don't know. It's always the st- maybe I should just like only do stupid stuff because it's the really silly, dumb ideas that tend to capture people's imagination. And I think just the timing was fortuitous. Like we mm. never would have got those actors. We never would have got those stars were they not um, all sat down because of the pandemic. And I don't think I would have got Shannon and Troy. If were they because it was it was actually done around the same time where they mm. not sat down uh, during the pandemic and you know I don't think I would have had time to devote to this book and getting it finished and getting it out the door and some of the other projects I'm doing if I wasn't if I didn't have all this free time because of the strike so you know it's I think well, yeah, again we talk about life finds a way creativity finds a way um, I guarantee you right now many 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 screenwriters who are unable to work in Hollywood because of the strike are working on their own personal projects because they can't look creative people can't not create right? yeah. you can't just sit around and do nothing you have to make things otherwise you just kind of die inside and so it's been very gratifying to me in the middle of a strike where uh so many people like can't even can't promote the work that they've done or they can't go off and create new work because it's all struck and rightly so the hollywood needs to get its shit together um to, to have something that is untouched by that because books aren't affected right my own personal projects unaffected so it's actually been really really it's been invaluable to me to feel like i still can have a creative life even as this strike kind of drags into what is like fourth fifth month and we're mm. all we're all over it two months for uh, sag four months for the wga i believe yeah. yeah yeah um but you know i had i have quite a few friends say the same thing they're like bet you really really don't regret moving into books <laughs> and i'm like yeah exactly how, right. how did i know but like i just think more people should be talking up about books and thank you so much for letting me talk about books for the last 90 minutes with you gary for those that want a copy of gundog it is available right now head over to amazon or wherever you buy your books and get it if you want to listen to it it is available where you get your podcasts it's a little bit different don't look to your audiobook areas no, go, you, go but you can't find it on, it is on Audible. It's just free. Is that right? It is on Audible. Oh. It's on pretty much every, we, we, we saturated it. And I've got, I've got to repeat this because my publisher asked me to say this every time. If you like the book, if you liked either the audio version, because it's the same thing or the written version of the book, people ask me all the time, like, how can I like support you as an author? What's the, what's the most useful thing that I can do? The most useful thing you can do, because my publisher keeps hammering this into me, is go to Amazon, go to Goodreads and leave a, a rating on the books page, leave a short comment, a review if you liked it, uh, because that feeds the Amazon algorithm and helps them recommend the book to other people and it helps other people discover the book. If you didn't like the book, 
keep your mouth shut. But if you did like it. And don't tag. This is like something I've really got to tell the book communities. Don't tag authors into reviews that you don't lo- like. love it. Oh, when are people going to figure that out? Like, seriously. I just. Some people. I had this happen to the other day. Like somebody who, who doesn't like Rogue One said something about it. And then um, somebody, somebody who thought they were defending me tagged me and going, oh, but Gary would have wrote that. And it's great. So why would you? Why would I? Why would I want you to direct my attention to someone who doesn't Bagging like something it I worked on? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that you're trying to help, but you're not. Stop it. Well, this will be better because Catch22, who did 22 subs earlier, actually slid into the document because he is a Patreon backer to ask the question, when you wrote the story for Rogue One, did you know it would become the best Star Wars film of the last 30 plus years? So there we go. <laughs> I, I, I will say this. I'm very, very gratified to see that of the Disney era, there's been, what, five Disney movies made under the Star Wars name. And I think uh, most people would agree they're a, they're a mixed bag, right? There's there's good, bad, and everything in between in, in the new movies. The fact that Rogue One has kind of emerged as I think I'm right in saying, like, the most broadly well-liked of all of them. IGN did a poll and it was like 40%. It, it was a landslide. Mm. is incredibly gratifying that people, that you know, to, to have... I always get emotional when I talk about this, but to like, to, I grew up with Star Wars. So to have contributed something, even in such a small way, because I was one of only four writers on the film. Um, and then obviously thousands of other people that make it um, to have contributed just like a, even a, a tiny piece to like that canon, which meant so much to me as a kid. And which then goes on to mean something for other people, like, you know, to put a little brick in the wall of the Star Wars legacy and say, I'm a part of that mm. is the, was the greatest uh, creative privilege in my life. Like, I could work in this business for 50 more years. And I don't think anything would ever end up like in front of Rogue One on my on my little bio. Wow. There you go. I love that too. Thank you again for giving me your time. Uh, please do support Gary and purchase that book. It is a really, really fun book. If you play Titanfall, you're going to love it. If you like Top Gun, you're going to love it. Um, it's We're heading there anyway, guys. We're only a couple of hundred years behind this being a reality, so we may as well learn everything that we can. One last thing because we're talking about Rogue One. It's funny. Someone asked me the other day, do you think that Jyn Erso and Dakota Bregman have anything oh, in yeah. common. And they never thought about it. But I was like, oh, my, they kind of do, right? Because yeah. they're both like these rebellious young women that like grew up kind of orphaned and like had to like learn to like fend for themselves. It's like, oh, shit, there's actually a lot of gin in Dakota. So if you like Rogue One, I yeah. know many people do, you might also like this book. Nicely said. Uh, I had plenty more questions, but I've, uh, I've taken enough of your time and I really I, do well, appreciate that. I have to learn to answer questions in a less kind of meandering on and on and on kind of way because people have like 20 questions lined up. They get through like four. So <laughs> yeah, I, long I did have a couple more, but I, I tried to integrate as many as I you could. You did great. I'm not Thank I'm you. not just blowing smoke. You, I, I've done a bunch of videos the past two weeks. You are by far my favorite one and the, the smartest person in terms of the questions that you asked about the book of any interview that I've done. Oh, so that, that means a lot. Thank you. It's a great book. It's a lot of fun. And I do love the fact that you can binge a book, especially since the slogan of Moore's book club is let's read more books. This is a really good entry point. If you want something that you can just absolutely enjoy and not put down and get back into the habit of reading books. Um, thank you again, Gary. I'll say goodbye and I'll raid onto the next one. Cause we like to pass it on around here but I won't keep you any longer. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Yay.